New Testament. And uh, Paula began her working life teaching for 12 years in ministerial formation, first at Ripon College, Cuddeston, Oxford, and then at the Queen's Foundation for Ecumenical Theological Education in Birmingham. Following that, she spent around eight years as a speaker and writer in biblical studies, traveling uh, the length and breadth of the country and seeking to communicate the best of biblical scholarship in a really accessible and practical way. Um, Paula is a theologian in res uh, sorry, uh, excuse me, Paula currently is uh, the Chancellor of St Paul's Cathedral in London. And so Paula, it's a real joy to welcome you to the Godcast. Hello and how are you? Um, really lovely to be with you and I'm great, thank you. Um, it's, as with everyone, it's strange times, isn't it? So I want to go, in the circumstances, I'm doing really well. Yeah. <laughs> where, you have to have that in the circumstances at the start. <laughs> and whereabouts in the world are you today? Um, I'm in London, so I currently live just around the corner from St Paul's Cathedral. So I get a house with uh, my role as Canon Chancellor. Yes. Now, what, one of the first things I ask uh, people is, have you been to Burnley? And we've had a, a brief discussion prior to this interview. You've got connections not too far away. Just quickly tell us about that. Yeah, indeed. And so my mum lives in Bakeup. My dad used to be vicar of Christchurch in Bakeup um, and sadly died in 2019. But they uh, loved the part of the world so much that they stayed there. So, um, yeah, I go to Burnley on a regular basis because it's one of the best places to go for supermarkets from Bakeup. <laughs> Excellent. Lovely. Paula, now um, the Godcast reaches quite a wide audience. Uh, some are academics, some are, are just uh, in, uh, people who are interested in, in matters of faith. Uh, the role of uh, Chancellor of St Paul's Cathedral in London, that sounds very grand, but can you explain to us what that actually means? What, what is that role? Yeah, it's not quite as grand as it sounds. It's one of those jobs that sounds very fancy. Um, so it, my other title is Director of Learning, which say, is a lot easier to understand in a sense. So I oversee three strands of work in the life of the cathedral. One of them is uh, schools and family learning. And in a normal time, which is not now, uh, we would welcome about 31,000 school children into the cathedral each year from widely diverse backgrounds, um, largely from London, and um, introduce them to both to the building and to heritage issues, but also to issues of faith. We also run an adult learning programme, which is um, entirely for lay people and explore some of the key issues of faith. We have large, again, in normal times, we have large events on the cathedral floor, which are then videoed. And if anyone's interested, we have a whole back catalogue of really interesting talks from various people. Of course, we've had to take that online. Um, and so now we do online um, conversations and written reflections. Um, and that is another big strand of work. And then the third strand of work is social justice. And uh, we look very much for ways in which we can both enact social justice in the world around us but also embed it into the life of the cathedral as well. Wonderful, sounds very uh, very interesting. So it keeps, me out, keeps me out of mischief. I'm mostly. sure it does, yes. Um, let's just um, let's take a step back Paula because um, I think it's fair to say you are one of the most renowned uh, certainly British theologians out there and you're, you're very well known but where did where did it all begin, Paula? Where did this kind of interest in learning theology come from? Was it uh, way back in Sunday school? Was it at high school? Was it was it even after high school? Where did it all begin for you? Um, well, I think I was always I was always academically inclined. Um, 
when people talk about their um, ill-spent teenage years, I spent it um, reading Greek and Latin texts in the original language rather than going out and partying. So I think I kind of started early um, with uh, being academically inclined. And, um, but it really embedded in me in when I um, started, when I went to university. So I had, I've all, I always fancied studying theology. And again, it's just a sign that I was a slightly weird teenager, but I always fancied studying theology. And um, I went to, uh, so my dad at that point was vicar in Manchester. And uh, I went to a sixth form college in Moss Side. And uh, somebody said to me one day, oh, someone like you would never get into Oxford, which is a really bad thing to say to me, because I went, oh, well, I'm not then. Um, and so therefore um, decided I was going to apply to Oxford. And I didn't really know much about it, um, had no real sense, um, wasn't my background, didn't know anything about it. So I decided I would just apply for theology in Oxford, loved the look of the course. Um, and I flicked through pr the prospectus. And the very last college in the prospectus was one was Worcester College, which has got a really, really pretty lake. So I applied to it for the very profound reason that I liked the look of the pretty lake. But it turned out that the tutor at Worcester College at that time was Tom Wright. Right. And basically that gives you the answer of how it is not only that I got into doing theology, but also that I got into doing New Testament. It's very hard to sit in a room for a long time with Tom Wright and not be infected by his enthusiasm for reading the Bible. And uh, basically that's what happened to me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, but although to be honest, I never planned to be a theologian. Um, I come from the inner city in Manchester um, I didn't ever believe that someone like me could do it. So basically, I applied to do theology at Oxford because someone told me I would never be able to. And then at the end of my time, um, I really doing the degree, I really didn't know what to do. So Tom said to me, why don't you think about doing a doctorate? And I went, oh, I'll never be able to do that. But I applied um, and got it. And, um, and it's kind of that's been the story of my life. I've kind of bumbled on going, oh, I wouldn't be able to do that. And then I've carried on. So, um, so it wasn't a plan. Um, yeah. It was more, um, you might call a divine accident. Yeah, just for people who aren't aware, Tom Wright is another, is another British theologian who is highly regarded and is also uh, very accessible, uh, as you are as well, Paula. So um, can, I, can I just ask, did you find, um, as an academic, that you could turn your mind to any subject in, in theology? I mean, just for my own example, you know, some things I really re and still really struggle with, but other areas... I was really switched on to, I remember the pastoral care and death and dying module absolutely enthralled me as where, well. you know, uh, learning about Arius and, and things like that was a bit of a grind for me. How, <laughs> yeah, how do you... I'm the same. Um, I'm, you very generously call me a theologian, but actually I'm a biblical scholar. And, um, and I can't, I, my brain is not wired properly for doing things like the systematic theology doctrine. Um, I listen to people who do it and admire them enormously um, and have no idea really why they go in the directions they go or why they do what they do. So I'm, I'm somebody who loves reading texts. Yeah. Um, I also love novels. So I'm a kind of a real kind of text person. Um, I love reading stories, I love reading poetry, and I love reading the Bible and making sense of it. That's the thing that I'm good at. I'm not good at anything else, unfortunately, no. a description of what it did to my relationship. And um, was 
ordination uh, an area that you ever considered? Some people may be surprised that you're not ordained and that you're a lay reader. What, what, was, what has been your thinking in that process? Um, well, I had a very clear experience when I was in my 20s, um, which told me that I wasn't called to be ordained. And it was, I mean, it was unfortunate at the time, but it was actually enormously helpful. And before I tell you the story, and you need to know that the DDO who said this was wrong, but wrong, or, or maybe, well, right in the wrong kind of way, or wrong in the right kind of way. Um, so let me um, explain. So I was exploring ordination and got to the stage where I was about to be sent to a selection conference. And uh, the DDO, in those days, I was in Oxford, and there was a ladies' DDO as well as an um, ordinary DDO. And the ladies' DDO said to me, um, and this was in 1993, so just after the vote for the ordination of women to the priesthood. She said, the church doesn't need academic women. You have to choose whether you want to be an academic or a priest. Um, come back to me when you've chosen. And what was really, so that's the wrong bit, because just to be clear, the church absolutely does need academic women um, and academic men and non-academic women and non-academic men. It, mean, it needs all of us. But I think um, what it did for me, which was really, really clear in that moment, she said, choose. And I chose being an academic and not being a priest. And interestingly, at that moment, then walked away from the idea of being ordained and have never, ever wanted to come back. Mm. Um, and feel very, very comfortable. And I think for me, one of the really interesting things is I, I didn't know that I was making a choice about encouraging lay people to study more and to do theology, but actually that's what I have chosen to do. Um, and therefore it's a really, really important thing for me. Yeah. And the, the other thing I would just say on the back of that is I spent 12 years, as you said at the start, working with people who were following their vocation to ordination. And the one thing I know from the hundreds of conversations I've had with people is that if you have got a vocation to ordination, you can't walk away from it. And I was able to walk away from mine. Um, I never felt the need to go back. And for me, that told me that actually I'm genuinely called to be a lay person. Yeah. And, and in, I suppose in historical terms, the 90s is not that long ago. But how would you assess uh, the shift for women since then and now? Has it been as rapid as you would like or, or are you dissatisfied in some areas? Yes and no I think really I mean as with all things in the church is that I mean what's really lovely is that um, women's ordination is absolutely normal now um, you wouldn't bat an eyelid in many many circles about having an ordained woman um, and in fact there's one of my friends told me a really lovely story of um, a little girl who was about eight who uh, she went to um, visit in the home she was an ordained priest and the little girl sidled up to her and said did you know men can be priests too and this little girl had only ever met female priests and therefore had no idea that they and this had come as a great kind of revelation yeah. to her. so you know in some ways um the church is completely different than it was in 92 and um all in my view all for the better um i think we never really um it's one of those issues that we always need to have in our minds and recognize um, is an issue. And there are ways in which being a woman in the church is still very complicated. Um, and I think there are still ways in which we, we need to pay attention to the dynamics and what is going on. So I would, that's my kind of yes and no answer. Yes, mm -hmm. it's completely transformed and no, there's still quite a long way to go. Um, yeah. But I think that's true also, um, 
I think it's absolutely true of women, but it is also in a way true of men too. And I think, I, I think what it means to be a man in ministry is still something we're not very good at talking about, just as we're not good at talking about what it means to be a woman yeah. in ministry. That, that leads nicely to my, to my next question. I've written some of these down, Paula, because they're quite long. But, but in terms of the, the breadth of the church, um, um, you know, somebody who didn't come to church till I was 40, it's, it's been my experience that the church is deeply middle class. Um, yeah, it really is. <laughs> both in its congregations and in its ministry. And I, and I wonder what you make of that. A few years back when I started going to church and the Sea of Blackburn, uh, the Diocese of Blackburn was looking uh, for a new uh, bishop. I went to this listening group and this, this gentleman quite bravely, I thought, put his head above the parapet and said, what we need is a bishop that is going to reach out to readers of the, the, the news of the world and the sun, just as much as readers of the Daily Mail and the Guardian. And, and I wonder if you think that is, is what we do still lack in the church or whether we're making adequate progress. Oh, no, not at all. I totally agree with you. Um, so so although I'm kind of, it's, I was having a conversation the other day with someone about class and class, as you know, is a really complex thing because um, th there was an article written about um, people who are not working class who still identify as working class. And I think I'm one of those. And that I grew up in a um, council estate in the middle of Manchester. My um, maternal grandfather was a carpenter and my paternal grandfather was an, a sparky for the co-op. Um, so kind of come from kind of proper working class background. But my dad was a vicar. My mum went to university um, and I, of course, have been to university and I'm now an academic. So in my head, I'm working class. In my reality, I'm middle class. And I think that is true of some people. But I also think that actually it is really difficult to survive and thrive in the church as somebody who is a properly working class, um, not like me, kind of genuinely working class. And I think um, as in the church, we need to make a vast um, step forward. Uh, I think the problem is that there are not enough people who are genuinely working class to be able to help us see how to do it. And there's a kind of a, there is a, there's also an irony, which I discovered when I went to Oxford, is that um, you can't go back. So once you step into a more middle class environment, you can't then return. Um, you still have kind of values and issues and culture in your head, but actually you change. Mm. So almost by definition, if you have people who lead the church who have got a degree, they are by definition not working class anymore. Um, and therefore you get into this circle um, of how you actually do properly listen to people who are genuinely working class. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, I think you raise a really important issue and how we solve it is a very interesting one. I am, um, I'm not a great reader. I, I, I struggle with my reading, but, but I'm, I do enjoy audio. But one of the books I've read, I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's a book called Towards a New Day. And it's by um, uh, Father Ralph Martin. And, and it's a book basically about Callum College, which was a, a theological college in the 70s that I was abs absolutely enthralled to learn about and ended up speaking to some of the people that attended there. And there were dockers there and there were people yeah. who, who worked in the coal mines and uh, labourers. And, and to me, I, I'm, I was struck that, that that is no longer really in the church system. And, and if you go to a theological college... You know, you go to beautiful places like Cuddleston or to Durham, you know, um, and, and all these other wonderful places to learn. And, and I sometimes wonder what we really need is a theological college in Bacup. 
In yeah, absolutely. Although it must be said that Callum was quite nice. Um, I, I saw the old site of it um, after it had closed. It was a rather beautiful place as well. Um, but yeah, no, I totally agree. I think, um, and there are some people who are doing some really brilliant work, I think, in thinking about how how we can give a pathway, a way of training for people who wouldn't be comfortable in Cudston or Durham and those kind of places. Um, my old colleague in the Birmingham Diocese, um, Andy Dalmej, um, did some really interesting work. He's in the um, Estate, Church Net Net Estate Churches Network. Um, and he was doing some really very significant work on what does training look like for people who come from non-book cultures? Mm. Um, how do we encourage people who come from those kinds of backgrounds in order to be able to train um, properly for ministry? Because until we do that, we're going to stick where we are, I think. Yeah. Some, somebody who, who left school with no qualifications, Paula, and who entered that training system, it was a very enriching experience, but it was quite a torrid experience as well, because I, I, re I realised my own limitations against some very clever people. And I, I do think there's, there's a journey that we need to uh, go down. Um, just uh, moving on a little bit and talking a little bit, obviously, you're, as you said, you're a biblical uh, scholar. And in your bio, bio, you state that you wish to communicate the best of biblical scholarship in an accessible way and I've experienced the bible and uh, studied it myself but it, but it is it's an incredibly complex book isn't it and I know that people will be watching this today um, or whenever they're picking up on a podcast or or, or later they will um, maybe have an interest to to read the bible but just don't know where to start what would your very simplistic basic tip be if somebody wanted to pick up the bible today um Oh, yeah, no, and I totally relate to that. I think one of the worst things we can do is um, say to people that reading the Bible is, Bible is an easy thing to do. It really, really isn't. Um, and so therefore, um, the first thing that I would say is choose your translation carefully, is that make sure you get a translation. So there are lots and lots of translations of the Bible out there. Um, and choose a translation of the Bible that places its emphasis on meaning rather than on accuracy. So basically, when you translate the Bible, you can either translate the Greek word for word, which keeps it very, very accurate to the original language, but then makes it quite hard to read. Or you can emphasize the meaning, what it's really trying to get at. And if you go for that, then generally speaking, it's an easier read, read of the Bible. And a much overlooked um, translation is the New International Reader's Version of the Bible. Um, what's interesting about that is it, it aims at the reading age of people who read the News of the World and the Sun and the Daily Mail, rather than most translations um, aim at the Daily Telegraph and the Sunday and the, and the Times. Um, so it's worth kind of trying to get your reading age Bible right for what you normally read. So that would be the first thing. And then the second thing I would say is whatever you do, don't read it like it's a book. Um, what we do when we read a book is we open it at page one and we go onwards. The problem with that is that you very, very quickly get into some of the most complicated bits of all, like Leviticus, um, which I really genuinely don't recommend to anybody who's new to reading the Bible. So instead, what I would do is I would ask what kind of thing do you, if you were to read something else, what kind of thing would you read? Um, and once you've answered that question, then start the Bible with the kind of book that's like that. So if you're the kind of person who likes reading a bit of poetry, 
read the Psalms. If you're the kind of person who likes reading biographies, read the Gospels. If you're the kind of person who likes reading history, read um, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. So kind of choose the kind of thing where you start um, according to the kind of um, text that you like. But if you're not sure, start with Mark's Gospel and uh, read. You really can't go far wrong with Mark's Gospel, and, but leave some of the other stuff for later um, because uh, there's plenty of time to get into complex things like um, the book of Revelation. You can do that later on. Yeah. And Paula, do you still get surprised by what the Bible reveals to you? Yeah, yeah. always. So, I mean, I think that's the thing that's why I'm still doing it 25 years later, is that even something that I know really, really well, um, I can read a text and see something in it I've never seen before. I've got to do a piece of work just at the moment. I'm working on Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Um, and I've just discovered something mind blowing about it that I didn't know before, which is that, um, that the original language doesn't say the Lord is my shepherd, but the Lord shepherds me, which completely changes it in my mind. Um, it's those kind of things that um, forever fascinate me. Just, just for people out there, how does it change it for you, Paula? Um, because it moves it from saying this is what a description of God, this is who God is, to a description of relationship. God nourishes me, God shepherds me, God finds the ways for me to be able to find um, kind of a comfort and hope. Um, and so therefore it makes the relationship dynamic rather than just um, a descriptive one. Yeah, lovely. Fantastic. Great. I'm, I'm just um, just trying to move on. Time is moving very quickly. Um, one of my favourite theological books, you'll be pleased to know, is one that you, you wrote, and it was on the subject of heaven. Yeah, and I, I, read it, I read it on an aeroplane travelling to America, I think. <laughs> so I got my head into it. And um, but recently I did a, a podcast with five other priests in, a, uh, in the northern province talking about heaven. And it seems to me that there are two clear questions that came up. And maybe you can give an abridged answer to what I'm going to say. First one is, does everybody go? And secondly, what's it like? And this was on the back of me when I first sat down with the priest for the very first time. I remember the very first question I asked him was, what's heaven like? To which he replied, I don't know. I haven't been, which I thought was a wonderful answer. <laughs> That's the best answer. <laughs> does everybody go? And, um, and what's it like? Um, let me start with the what's it like. It's a lot easier. Um, I think um, from, from reading the Bible, I would say that um, it's very like now in that we will have bodies, there will be a heaven and an earth, and we will experience um, the world as we experience it now, but without any of the nasty bits. There will be no death, no sorrowing. That beautiful um, bit in Revelation where it says God will wipe away every tear from your eye. That's what it's going to be like. It's going to be beautiful and um, glorious and God will be there and there'll be no separation between us and God. That bit, I think, is kind of relatively easy to trace from the Bible. Does everybody go is a much more complicated question. Um, and I think I would say um, probably more people than you imagine, um, but not everybody, since you want a quick answer. If you want a long answer, I could take about an hour saying it, but that's me quick answer. Yeah, well, that certainly matches with what some of my colleagues were talking about. But that uh, that book you wrote that book about ten years ago, I think. And um, yes, has, has your 
Have you learned any more since then? Is anything? Well, yeah, I have, and I've written a, a sequel to it actually, um, which is called Body. Um, so, and I, that came out in 2016. Um, and I think one of the things that I became really, really convinced about having read, written Heaven, is that actually, if we believe that uh, life after death involves our bodies, then we need to start paying much more attention to our bodies now. Um, so, it's a book about um, why beliefs about life after death actually um, affect how we live in our bodies now and why they might be more important. Yeah. And um, just on another subject, uh, um, we're, we're kind of Paula Gooder fans at St Matthew's at the moment. We're, we're working through uh, your study on uh, walking through the wilderness, ah, yes. um, which we, we found quite relevant, particularly in these COVID times yeah. that we're, we're living. I, I wonder if you could offer a, a comment or a, a word of encouragement word of encouragement to people who who maybe feel like they are in their in a wilderness at the moment in terms of this pandemic and and how they might be able to see some hope in the future yeah and I think probably what I would say is hold on um that would be my biggest message of hope is that as you trace your way through the old and the new testaments you've find stories of people who have really hard times um, where they feel absolutely in despair and hopeless. And um, every time, eventually, um, they emerge from it and they discover that God has been with them all the time. And for me, I would say, even on those days where it feels utterly hopeless and that there is no sense of God in the world, um, know that God is there and God is always with you. And therefore, just hold on, and eventually, um, you will see a new, new, a new day, a new life. Yeah, and sometimes it's in the most simple things, isn't it? I've just, I've just returned from walking the dogs, and um, the, the daff, the daffodils are, are popping yeah. up everywhere around here, and and and, it, and it's surprising how, uh, how positive that can just that little bit yeah, of positivity that we've not had for yeah. ages, you know. So, um, and that. And it reminds us of resurrection. <clears throat> Jesus rose from the dead. So even when everyone thought the end was absolutely the end, it wasn't. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to move on quickly to another question. I, I could talk to you all day, Paula, but uh, we can't. But I want to ask you um, this question as a non-academic. And the question is, is that do you think that we can actually read too much? Um, one, of the, one of the most intimidating things for me as a trainee priest was visiting the home of some of the tutors who had bookshelves from front to back, left to right, top to bottom, um, in this quest to seek the answers and the solutions to these big theological questions. Now, now I'm a little bit more experienced as a, as a vicar. I do sometimes wonder if their time could be better served actually out on the coalface in the field doing the stuff. And um, I was wondering as an academic whether you want to fire me down or, or agree or what do you, what's your thoughts? Well, I know a lot of academics um, and I would have a, a tendency to agree with you, frankly. Um, and I think for me, what I've always tried to do with my study is make sure that the question, so what, is there right at the front. Um, does this make any difference? Is it of any interest to anyone other than me? Does it make any difference to the way in which we live in the world? And if the answer is no, you abandon it. And for me, so I don't think... I don't think you can study too much, but you can study too much about stuff that isn't relevant for people and makes yeah. no difference in people's lives. So yeah. for me, it's uh, what difference does this make? Yeah. On a Monday morning, what difference does this make? If the answer is none, step away and do something else. Yeah. 
And 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 in terms of the the pandemic, Paula, um, you know, I was re you know, there's been stuff on Twitter and stuff about you know churches were going to have to close and clergy are going to be made redundant. What what's your thoughts on the effect of this pandemic? Um, you know, do do you think it it might actually offer some renewal rather than decline, uh, or do you think it will maybe accelerate the parish church system? I think it's way too early to tell. Um, we simply can't know. Um, I've been interested by the um, articles and think um, that I, I don't believe, um, well, I don't believe the newspaper re reports about them, to be honest. I think it's a lot more complicated than that. And as you hinted, I think that the church always has to change. And there's something about the way in which we are in the church, which makes us not want to change. We dig our heels in as much as possible. And sometimes big events come and they change us without us wanting to. The pandemic's one of those. I would see in the pandemic an enormous amount of hope for um, how it's going to change us in the future. And I think that's a really exciting thing. And that actually there will be some things, you know, we, we believe in a God both of death and of resurrection. And you can't have resurrection without death. This is the really kind of crucial bit about, you know, you, we would just love to rush on to Easter and forget Good Friday the whole time. Um, what we have to do is live faithfully through the Good Friday moments. And I think the pandemic is one of our Good Friday moments. Yeah. But in the knowledge that after Good Friday, there is always Easter because that is the God we believe in. Yeah. And therefore, there is always hope. And so therefore, I think it's a quite an exciting time. Changes come. We're going to have to change. Um, the question is, how are we going to have to change and what's it going to look like? Yeah. But I'm confident that the God of resurrection will mean that it's a really great change in the long yeah. term. There's some, there's some big challenges ahead. I mean, we've been we've been quite heavy on social media, and and we've reached out to a, a lot of people. That but that does not mean that they're going to walk through the door the minute the church opens. And I think there's those dilemmas that that people have seen opportunity through through this pandemic. But actually, it's the next step, isn't it? It's when we're allowed back in whether we can maintain what we're doing now in a kind of an online forum and actually engage them in in, in other things. And I think that's a challenge. Um, yeah. for all of us really yeah. um in terms of just a few final questions paul in terms of urban ministry which i'm um which you know i'm very um concerned about and do, do you do you think that the well i know i think I, I think the church needs to do a lot more in terms of supporting urban ministry and uh, our own bishop philip north who i have a lot of time for you know thinks that the money is often misplaced and you get these very very wealthy diocese in the church of england who are kind of sitting on huge bucket loads of cash um, um you know we would we would benefit hugely by some investment in our urban estates what's the way forward for that do you think um bishop philip really he's he's a dynamo um i think if i he if he carries on rattling cages in the way that he is um he will eventually begin to make a difference in the way in which people think and actually must be said he already has um, and it's not just him but people like him I mentioned before a former colleague um, Andy Dalmesh who is in Birmingham Diocese he also um, has kind of pers persevered over the years and um, reminding people that urban ministry is so very important that it needs investment that you need to think differently in order to be able to do it well so I would say I'd be encouraging you to join in and say, um, carry on knocking on the doors, rattling the cages, um, and eventually people will be, begin to see. 
One of the things, I don't know if you were aware, but I did this thing that got a lot of views on the BBC before Christmas, and and um, we were talking about poverty, and um, was that lots of people from the south of England, middle-class ladies, were ringing me up, and, and I'm, I'm talking hundreds of phone calls, yeah. who just simply said to me, I didn't know. Yeah. And that flabbergasted me. I just didn't, um, I thought, what, you really don't know? And I wonder if that's the case in the church, that people just just don't realise it's like that for some places. No, I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I think it's very comfortable not to know, and therefore people will often choose not to know. I and mean, I think it's one of those um, where you, you always want to say you could have known, um, you just chose not to know. Yeah. And I'm not being unfairly critical of them. I just think, I think that there is plenty of evidence around if you wanted to know, but because of the way in which our brains work and we choose not to see it. Um, but I think it is right that people don't know and therefore the kinds of things like you did just before Christmas are really, really vital because it pushes, it puts things directly under people's noses. Um, and I know you can't do it too often, but it is really important to remind people that actually this is the reality. Yeah. And in the, in the you know, um, difficult question, but perhaps the final question, you know, where, where will we be 10 years from now? Do you think we might... The possibilities of having a female archbishop are, are, are real. Um, do you think the church is going to be quite different in 10 years as, as we kind of shift generations? Um, yeah, I mean, yes, bound to be, because um, 10 years is a really long time. If you look back from here 10 years ago, actually, the church has changed quite a lot. The trouble is it always just changed a little bit by a little bit. So then you don't notice the change that's happening. So, yeah, no, I think um, we may have a female archbishop. We may not have a female archbishop. I mean, who knows where, how in, um, it's about getting the right person in the job. I, um, so I think um, the church may have very <laughs> Sorry. From... Okay. So, sorry, where do you want me to start again? If you just, if you just go from the question about the church changing. Sure, okay, I'll, lovely. I'll, I'll edit it. I think the church definitely will be different in 10 years' time. Uh, there's no doubt um, churches change all the time. And if you think even what the church was like back in 2010, um, we've changed already. Um, I think it's very likely that actually following the pandemic, we will change even more rapidly than we have since 2010. So I'd be really interested to see um, where we'll be. I'm confident we will be here. I'm confident that people like you will still be doing fabulous ministry in, in the areas that you are. But I think it will look different. And for me, the really interesting question is in what way will it be different? Um, who knows exactly um, what it's going to look like and feel like, but I'm confident that um, the God of love and resurrection will still be around and um, challenging us into new areas. There may be a female Archbishop of Canterbury, there may not be, who knows? Um, let's wait and see. Interesting times. Paula, it's been really lovely talking to you and I hope, hope it's not been uh, too challenging. I'm sure it hasn't, <laughs> um, but it's been great. And uh, you've got you've got a website if people want to, uh, learn more about you haven't you and you've got lots of books out there do you just want to say a bit about yep. that yeah so probably my most recent book is a book on the parables and uh, I was looking at I, I decided I wanted to have a look at every single parable so rather than just doing a few I did them all um, um, 
uh, it was um, hard work halfway through, but I really enjoyed it in the end. Um, and it was uh, really fun to do. The book before that um, was a book called Phoebe, in which I did told a story. I imagined what it might have been like to have lived in one of the Pauline churches and um, focused it around Phoebe, who took the letter of Romans from Corinth to Rome. And I'm now halfway through another one called Lydia, which is um, looking at somebody who lived in Philippi and what it might have been like to be in the church in Philippi. So um, I'm, I actually am also working on another one as well um, on the Psalms. Um, so keeping lady. myself busy. You are a very busy lady. Paula, it's been really lovely. Um, thanks for everybody if you've chosen to watch this interview with Paula Gooder. This is uh, the Godcast and you can find more videos and interviews like this on thegodcast.co.uk. But for now, Paula, we send our love from the north to the south and say thanks very much for joining us on the Godcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's been lovely to be with you.